Straw Hut Media. It's kind of funny that almost everything we know about the personal lives of our ancestors comes from snooping in their letters and diaries. Without phones and email and DMs, everything that wasn't said out loud was written down on paper and usually saved for posterity. Today on Pride, we'll read writings from between the Revolutionary War up to the Civil War, some of the very suggestive letters between Alexander Hamilton and John Lawrence, the diary entries of two women in Vermont in the early 1800s, and also some pretty explicit letters from early frontiersmen. Dr. Eric Cervini is with us again as we dive into part three of our series on the queer history of the United States. Stay with us. I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. When the Revolutionary War ended in 1783, the colonies gradually settled into their new identity, the United States of America. We're talking really, this is considered the antebellum era. So it's all the years between uh, the the conclusion of the Revolutionary War and uh, the outbreak of the Civil War. Antebellum is a Latin word that means before the war. Up until the Civil War in 1861, there was a lot of debate between federal and state powers. After all, the U.S. was not a conventional country with one set of rules for everyone to follow. Instead, it was a group of states made stronger together but capable of preventing concentration of power. So throughout this period, the South is becoming a huge economic force. They have massive amounts of resources and slave labor. On the opposite side of the country, the North becomes more and more industrialized every day. The country is becoming more and more polarized between the pro- and anti-slavery camps. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're here to talk about Alexander Hamilton. You know him as one of the founding fathers. A believer in a strong federal government, the first secretary of the treasury, the main character in Lin-Manuel Miranda's hit Broadway show. But before all of that, he was just an ambitious young man. It's 1777, you know, towards the beginning of the war. Uh, Hamilton is working as a senior aide for Washington, who was commander in chief of the Continental Army. That same year, Hamilton meets a man named John Lawrence. And this is a blue eyed, stylish young officer uh, in the Continental Army. Lawrence has been living in England and studying law. He's just married a woman he got pregnant to save her reputation. She hasn't even given birth yet. But then he comes back to America to help out during the war, and that's when he meets Alexander Hamilton. They become close friends pretty quickly. In case you need a face for Lawrence, this is the character played by Anthony Ramos in the original Broadway production of Hamilton. I think if anyone who's seen the musical, you know, they are very close, at least on stage. They seem like brothers. Uh, But I think one thing uh, that the musical doesn't capture is this wasn't necessarily brotherly love. Honestly, when we look back and read the letters they wrote to each other, they seem kind of gay. One says, quote, I wish, my dear Lawrence, it might be in my power, by action rather than words, to convince you that I love you. I shall only tell you that till you bade us adieu, I hardly knew the value you had taught my heart to set upon you. Pretty romantic, right? 
Now, if you remember last week, we talked about how freely friends expressed affection for each other at this point in time, so open declarations of love weren't uncommon. But time and time again, these letters make it pretty clear that this was an intimate friendship uh, at the very least. There was even one letter that Hamilton's heirs may have chosen not to publish because it was a little too suggestive. In this letter, he refers to his soon-to-be wife, Elizabeth Schuyler. It reads, In spite of Schuyler's black eyes, I still have a part for the public and another for you, so your impatience to have me married is misplaced. A strange cure, by the way, as if after matrimony I was to be less devoted than I am now. Makes you wonder, right? He describes her as a good-hearted girl. Um, he's not the most uh, excited about it from, from some of the letters, but, you know, he, he's, he's happy about it. When Hamilton gets married in 1780, Lawrence can't come to the wedding. Earlier that year, he had been captured by the British, shipped to Philadelphia, and paroled under the condition that he didn't leave the state. And Hamilton was pretty bummed out about that, and even jokingly writes to... Uh, to Lauren saying, you know, I would invite you to, uh, I would invite you after the fall to Albany, which is where uh, they, they got married, to be witness to the final consummation. Uh, meaning he literally was inviting him to watch him and his wife have sex. Um, so maybe it was a joke. Maybe it was a little bit more. It's hard to tell. We know his wife was devoted. She carried a poem he wrote for her around her neck and gathered all his writings after his death. We know their love story plays a prominent part in the Broadway musical. Still, even Ron Chernow, the historian who wrote the famous biography that inspired the musical, described John Lawrence as, quote, the most intimate friendship of Hamilton's life. And even though he warns that the writing style of the time prevents us from making assumptions, he also says, quote, At the very least, we can say that Hamilton developed something like an adolescent crush on his friend. Again, we can't say Hamilton was gay or that he was bisexual or anything like that. But we know that this friendship certainly had romantic elements to it. What's more, Eric says, is that growing up in the Caribbean likely exposed him to some forms of sexual deviation. In addition to enslaved people, uh, sodomites were also being shipped to the Caribbean. So we know that there, there's a good chance that he understood that there was this you know, sexually deviant uh, uh, tradition out there in the world. Sadly, their relationship was cut short. Lawrence was shot and killed in battle just a year before the war ended. And I think one of the greatest pieces of evidence that Lawrence was more than just a friend to Hamilton is how Hamilton actually reacted uh, to Lawrence's death. Um, and as Ron Chernow put it, you know, after the death of John Lawrence, this is his words, Hamilton shut off some compartment of his emotions and never reopened it. After the break, the first same-sex marriage in the United States, 200 years ago. Welcome back. Before the break, we talked about the intense bromance between Alexander Hamilton and John Lawrence. So how did they compare with other kinds of relationships, and how often did it cross over into steamy? These passionate, loving, physically affectionate friendships between members of the same sex, I was 
much more common uh, and it was much uh, more accepted back then. Eric says that not only were these kinds of relationships more accepted, there's also evidence to suggest that they were sometimes even more important than heterosexual ones. Especially, we talked about last time how even uh, for women, sometimes, you know, they would get married and while men would kind of maybe put their male friends on a, on a second tier, sometimes there's clear evidence that, that especially among women, uh, they continued uh, some of these very, very uh, emotionally charged, uh, arguably romantic uh, friendships and relationships with other women, uh, even after getting married. Eric shared a letter with us from 1826 that very clearly crossed over into steamy territory. It's from a 22-year-old white guy in South Carolina. He was writing to a friend, uh, and he said, uh, quote, Whether you have yet the extravagant delight of poking and punching a writhing bedfellow with your long fleshen pole, the exquisite touches of which I have often had the honor of feeling. So pretty clear what's As going on. As a historian, <laughs> could you tell me what a long flesh and pole is? I would rather not elaborate um, for, for our listeners, but I, I think it's pretty clear even though, yes, it was common back then in the 19th century uh, and before that for people to be sharing beds, for two men to be sharing beds or two women. This uh, poking and punching <laughs> of a writhing bedfellow with a long flesh and pole it's pretty it's pretty explicit what was happening. So, you know, we do have as historians have this evidence of homosexual activity. And maybe back then, if they were confronted with this letter, they maybe would have said, oh, no, we're just friends. We were just kidding. Eh, you know, it, it makes you wonder. In fact, historian Carol Smith Rosenberg, who has studied historic letters between female friends extensively, agrees. She said that while we can't assign a current term like homosexual to the relationships of the time, the letters have a quote, emotional intensity and a sensual and physical explicitness that is difficult to dismiss. Another historian, Rachel Hope Cleves, published a book in 2014 called Charity and Sylvia, A Same-Sex Marriage in Early America. By reading their poetry, diary entries, and letters, she was able to chronicle their life as a couple living in Weybridge, Vermont in the early 1800s. So Bryant was a seamstress and Drake became her apprentice. And so she moved in uh, and then over time, uh, they became something more. In their day-to-day -day life, they functioned as an ordinary married couple. And Charity's nephew, the poet William Cullen Bryant, described her as the husband and Sylvia as her fond wife. Uh, and they stayed together. Uh, beginning in, in 1807, they stayed together for 40 years. Uh, and everyone, including their families, recognized that they were married. Um, even their community recognized their roles and they worked, you know, very hard together to be able to, to you know, afford uh, not having husbands. In her research, Rachel Hope Cleves even found some evidence of a sexual relationship between them. Because both women were pretty religious, they don't explicitly refer to anything sexual, but they do make admissions to sin. There's one entry that I love uh, that's from their 31st anniversary. 
Um, and uh, Sylvia Drake writes, it's been 31 years since I left my mother's house and commenced serving in company with dear Miss B. Sin mars all earthly bliss and no common sinner have I been. But God has spared my life, given me everything I would enjoy, and now I have a space if I improve it to exercise true penance. So she's recognizing that her relationship in the context of uh, early American society, uh, her relationship with um, this other woman was, quote unquote, sinful, right? She knows that this is not um, the, you know, most socially sanctioned uh, uh, relationship that, you know, uh, this is transgressing social norms. But the fact that she lived that way and loved this other woman, I think is pretty remarkable despite those social norms. Even today, religion often has a similar effect on queer people. Being tasked with reconciling the popular interpretations of religious beliefs and what you know to be true in your heart is a lot to carry. And I think it's important to say, well, you know, we have these heroes essentially from, you know, 200 years ago who were living their lives and finding love despite what their religion and what their communities were telling them. And I think what's especially interesting that uh, Charity and Sylvia were able to do is they found a solution to that, that, that conundrum of, of society, you know, frowning upon same-sex activity by integrating their family members and the townspeople into their uh, domestic circle. It is honestly extraordinary that Charity and Sylvia not only successfully ran a business together and supported themselves, but also were accepted wholly in their community and their families. One of their nephews wrote, they took each other as companions for life and how this union, no less sacred to them than the tie of marriage, has subsisted in uninterrupted harmony for more than 40 years. Um, and I think what is so amazing because it's very similar to marriages today, right? Of two people, you know, they may share finances, they um, work together, they live together, they share all aspects of their lives together. And in that sense, their marriage was very normal. And I absolutely love the conclusion of Rachel Hope Cleave's uh, book, where she says the most remarkable element of Charity and Sylvia's life together in the final assessment may be how unremarkable it was. And so I absolutely love that. When we come back, the gay history of the YMCA. Welcome back. Today we're talking about same-sex relationships in early America. The revolution has been won, and America is finding her footing. During this period of rapid development and frontiering, there were a lot of opportunities for situational homosexuality. Men were often together for long periods of time, with little, if any, interaction with women. 
And I think you saw that, especially, uh, you know, beginning with the Louisiana Purchase right at the beginning of, of the 19th century. Um, all of a sudden, you have these men leaving their wives or their families uh, and leaving society and leaving society's norms to go to this unknown land, these frontiers uh, where there really were no rules, right? So you have miners, you have loggers, people building railroads a little later on. Um, you have these cowboy societies and Western frontier homesteads where there are not these really structured society uh, uh, mandated norms of how you're supposed to behave. And on top of that, there's no women. You might remember our episode last year about the golden age of piracy. Dr. Rebecca Simon taught us that long periods at sea made homosexual relationships relatively common and even accepted. Eric thinks the frontier era of the U.S. was similar, because not only were the men surrounded by men, they were also completely outside of standard society. Very easily, people on the frontier uh, would pair off, right? Maybe for protection or maybe for companionship. And then you see these instances of over time that they became uh, emotional or even sexual. Um, so it may have started out as uh, a practical pairing, but then it became something more. At the same time, men are founding organizations to promote morality and Christianity in cities. A good example of this is the Young Men's Christian Association, or the YMCA, which was founded in 1844. So everyone might have heard of the village people and the song. It's, it's a very gay song. But from the beginning, one of the reasons why now we identify it as a gay uh, or at least a gay adjacent institution is because uh, from the beginning, that's an all-male institution. Only men were allowed in the Young Men's Christian Association. When the song was written in the 1970s, it probably referenced the YMCA because residents were largely queer, making it a popular pickup spot. But scholars like Jenny Beeman have looked back even deeper. And she saw that a lot of the people who were running these YMCAs uh, were lifelong bachelors, right? They were not getting married. They were not starting families. Um, and they seem to be disproportionately uh, devoting their lives to other men uh, and to the YMCA. Uh, so it makes you wonder, you know, if there were people who had these at least homosexual inclinations, maybe they were finding voluntarily uh, spaces where they could be with other men uh, and where they would have that cover to uh, pursue these, these relationships or romantic friendships and say, oh, well, that's just my job. Eric thinks it's possible that some men saw all male environments, like the YMCA and the frontier, as opportunities to avoid giving in to heterosexual life. Maybe this was a way out from, you know, a really constricting society. Um, and you even have some of these very self-aware cowboys who are saying, uh, recognizing this phenomenon. There's one cowboy from, you know, the middle of the century in, in Oklahoma who wrote that his relationship with another man was, quote, first rooted in admiration, infatuation, and a sensed need of an ally, loneliness and yearning but it regularly ripened into love. Um, and I think it's a kind of a beautiful phenomenon. And you see that also in mining and logging railroad camps. 
And this brings us to San Francisco. Everyone thinks of it as a gay capital today. But did you know it also started out pretty gay? In the gold rush, you have thousands of young men flocking there for you know riches and adventure. Uh, but at the same time, we don't have any of those social norms that are back east. It's fun to imagine some of the men traveling west, not hoping to strike it rich in gold, but in freedom. Freedom from a rigid society that forbade them from loving who they wanted to love. And then you see this transgression also of gender norms. So, you know, these men or cowboys or uh, miners would hold dances. And, well, there's no women and they still want to dance. So what do they do? Well, they, some of them, would put on dresses or wear a wrap or a bandana. And that would be the signal that they would assume the women's part. Um, so, what does that mean? Uh, well, and it literally like and it, is it that they would assume the women's part dancing, yes. or that they would bottom? Well, we can't speculate too much about what they did after the dance, but certainly during the dance itself, um, they would uh, uh, take you know the women's role. I guess if they were <laughs> whatever dancing uh, they were doing back then. But um, so it's sort of like the early hanky code. Exactly. Yeah. But even though men were dressing up for dances and probably having lots of hot, gay, gold miner sex, you can't definitively say anything about sexuality when we take the context of male-only society into account. And we can't say that, you know, if you are engaging in sexual activity with a man and you're, you haven't seen a woman in a year or two years, does that make you gay? And we can't say that. We can't even say that now, right? Um, it's same sex. Uh, uh, sexual behavior, uh, but we can't necessarily say, oh, all the people who were, you know, uh, messing around with a fellow cowboy on the frontier, if you did that, then that made you gay. Because again, that category didn't exist, but also maybe they just wanted physical touch, right? That, that's totally valid. Um, and as historians, we have to say, all right, it's, it's, it's completely possible that maybe they didn't have any sort of actual desire to be with a man. But also we have to say, it's certainly possible that they did. So there are some highlights from the very queer antebellum era. Make sure you join us next week for part four of our series. Next time we'll be talking about the Civil War itself and up through the turn of the century, including uh, two of my favorite questions in American history, which was the sexualities of James Buchanan and Abraham Lincoln, two presidents who served back to back and may have been a little queer. is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Pride. You can follow me at Levi Chambers. And you can follow Dr. Eric Cervini at E-R-I-C-C-E-R-V-I-N-I. Pride is produced by me, Levi Chambers, Maggie Bowles, and Ryan Tillotson. 
edited by Sebastian Alcala. Boom. Awesome. I think we're good. Great. Woo.